Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, Therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. 
And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Amen. May God bless the reading of this most solemn word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to the preaching of your most holy word. And we come to the apex, as it were, the, the, the center point of the Bible, the crucifixion of our Lord. And just as the apostle said before that uh, we preach Christ crucified, and so help the minister now preach Christ crucified. We pray that the word has left its mark on these souls, but we pray now that the preaching of the word would do a, a mighty work in your people, that they would see Christ crucified as among them, And at the supper then, Father, that they would understand the broken body and shed blood of our Lord as he dies for us as our substitute. Help the minister preach in a manner that is worthy of the Lamb of God. And pray, Father, that we would all behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so help me, Father, now in the preaching of the word, that I would be determined to proclaim nothing among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in our preparatory sermon, we heard, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, out of Song of Songs 1, verse 16. We were to behold or take stock of the beauty of our beloved Jesus Christ, to take heart that he finds his bride, the church, lovely and desirous to himself, not because we have any innate beauty of our own, but because he beautifies in a, uh, 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 sinners who are wretches in his eyes if we were not with Christ. But for his own pleasure, he has set his love and affection on the elect of God, and he redeems them in time, giving his own righteousness to us, as we heard last time, as a bride is decked with ornaments from her groom. We heard that the Lord Jesus beautifies us at the table. That's what we beheld as we prepared for the supper. And now for communion, we behold another great sight out of the Bible. And we are to behold the man. Behold the man who is slaughtered as the Lamb of God to give himself for his bride, to die in her place, to suffer for her, and to know the truth of the word that we have heard in the Song of Songs, that he truly calls us, O my love, O my love, 
that as his bride is captive to sin, here is the Son of God to die for her, to cleanse her by the washing of his blood and the water and the blood that pours out of his side as after he suffers the wrath of God. We behold he who is altogether lovely, right? Most fair, we've heard time and time again, fulfill this solemn prophecy in Isaiah 52, 14, that his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. We behold the man fairer than the children of men, bloodied and bruised more than the sons of men. We behold the man stricken and smitten, accursed for his bride's sake. You know, as I alluded to, as I prayed, this is really the climactic moment in all the Bible. Really in all of history, this is the climax. All history leads us to behold the man who suffers in the place of sinners. That whoever, right, as the Bible promises, whosoever looks upon this man by faith shall be saved. As he dies the death that we deserve and gives us eternal life that we could never earn. It's an astonishing thing to consider this text if we understand the gospel. And so, before we partake of the sacrament, that we might partake with faith, love, knowledge, and adoration for the Savior, let us behold the man, Jesus Christ, who is the sinner's willing substitute. Behold the man, Jesus Christ, who is the sinner's willing substitute. And we'll consider that theme under three heads. First is to behold the man as our head. Second is to behold the man as our substitute. And third is to behold the man as our righteousness. First, behold the man as our head. Well, for some context, as we dive near the end of John's gospel this morning, and we've not been in the gospel thus far, at least we haven't for several years, uh, in this text, you might recall Pontius Pilate had received Jesus from the Jews. The Jewish council had convicted our Lord of blasphemy because he rightly called himself the Son of God. He called himself God, and they convicted him of blasphemy. You might look at Matthew 26 later on today to see how that sham of a trial went. And so now convicting our Lord, but without the power under Rome's government to put Christ to death, the high priests send Jesus to Pilate, who is Rome's governor over Judea. But as you know, Pilate was very conflicted about putting Jesus to death. His wife had warned Pilate, have thou nothing to do with that just man, just man. She had a dream from the Lord about Christ, and she knows that this man is just. And she tells her husband, have nothing to do with this man. He is just. So his soul's already troubled in a sense. And then Pilate's investigation into Jesus results in him saying thrice, I find in him no fault at all. John 18.38, we didn't read it, but we read also John 19.4 and John 19.6. Pilate himself shows us that Jesus Christ is the just man in whom there is no fault at all. And so what we do immediately here is we behold the spotless Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. There is no sin, there is no fault in Christ. Not even this corrupt and crooked man can find any fault in him. But Pilate, spineless man that he was, feared the Jews when they demanded that Jesus be crucified. He feared that this people, who was so hard to manage, might revolt once again. And he was afraid of what that might mean for his grip on power. 
And so Pilate comes up with this very ungodly scheme. I will torment Jesus to the very edge of death. I will humiliate this man that the Jews might take this as sufficient punishment on one hand and also see that this man is not worthy of being feared. He's just a man who bleeds. Now this is a terrible evil. For he well knows and he has confessed three times that Jesus deserves no punishment at all. He is a just man. And what is the duty that this man, this governor, has to God? Romans 13 says he is to reward the good and he is to punish the evildoer. To brutalize a man in whom there is no fault is a grave injustice if this was a mere man. But it is a cosmic crime when it is done to the Son of God himself. And so with that background in the first verse, while still seeking to avert the death penalty... Pilate has Jesus scourged. This is not the lashing found in the law of God. Forty stripes minus one. Now that, that, that had a, a certain level of mercy to it. It was meant to chastise but not kill. This is a cruel, cruel and barbaric scourging. Meant to bring the victim to the edge of death, if not death itself. You might know this, boys and girls, on leather whips... The Romans loaded lead, spikes, and bones to act as hooks to go into the flesh. They lacerate the back, the chest, and the face. There's no limit to the scourging like under the law of God. It could go on as far as these cruel men would want it to go until all that was left of the victim was a mass of bloodied and torn flesh. So many victims of this kind of torture had their entrails hanging out after scourging. Many died from the trauma of it. And you see here, these are not men reluctant to do this kind of work. Pilate's men enjoyed brutalizing the Lord of glory. And that's who we behold, of course. This is not just a man who is being brutalized. This is the God-man. God in the flesh. You know, for 4,000 years since the fall of man, sinners have longed to hurt God. And now they take their opportunity. Now they do to God what they had always hoped, to torment him now in his human nature. And we see then what is in the heart of sinners and why sinners are worthy of condemnation and hell. And the scourging was not enough for them. They then twist a crown of thorns on the head of our Savior to mock him. And what do we hear of our Savior, the Song of Songs? We've considered it so often. His head is as the most fine gold. And this precious brow pierced with cruel long thorns, twisted into a mockery of a crown. Then they put this purple robe on him to mock his claim he was a king. And certainly this was, uh, it's unlikely this was ever a new robe that they had. Purple robes are very, very expensive, of course. But certainly, most certainly, something very ragged that perfectly matched his crown of thorns and his tortured, bloody mess of a body. And instead of, you would think of this, right? Here's this just man who has done nothing wrong. Instead of pity in their heart for him, for this man who reviled not as he was reviled, they find it in their cruel hearts to also smite him with their own hands as they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they beat him. And so the Savior is here beaten, humiliated and silent in the face of it all then brought out by Pilate to face the Jewish mob, 
to show that he is a pathetic display, this man who is so bruised, bloodied, mocked, tortured. He hoped that they would see Jesus humiliated and silent in the face of it all, and that he was no threat to them or to Rome. Then, in John 19, verse 5, Pilate says these three immortal words as he displays the Savior, Behold the man. Behold the man. And it is those three words I want you to dwell on before we partake of communion. These three words have captivated the Christian church from the time they were uttered. The Latin is well known. It's ecce homo. Behold the man. There have been paintings and such. Obviously, we don't want to support second commandment violations. But this has been a theme in the Christian church for a very long time. Because it is the Holy Spirit and not Pontius Pilate who intends for us to behold the man. To behold or take note of the man who becomes the believer's substitute. Who becomes the believer's hope. To behold the God who takes on humanity to become the man who saves his people. And I want you to note this. Pilate's words are very particular. Pilate says, behold the man, not this man, not behold a man, but behold the man. And so what the Holy Ghost is setting before us is Jesus Christ as a representative or what we call in federal theology, he would be our covenant head, the one who represents us. This goes all the way back to Adam in the garden, beloved. You might know this, but Adam's very name in Hebrew means man. Man. And he was created to represent all men, all humans. Listen to Genesis 2.8, but think of John 19.4. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man, the man whom he had formed. Adam is the man in Genesis, just as Jesus is the man in John 19. And when the man, Adam, sinned, all men sinned in him and became sinners. And the whole world became accursed, death entering the world. Romans 5.12, wherefore as by one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And the thought there is in Adam. And as the man, Adam, all men are condemned before God in him. Romans 5.18a says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Adam, the man, represented all men. He was the prototype for mankind. And not only did death come into the world through the, the curse, right, as, as Adam fell. But the ground itself and the world is cursed. When you look at this world, it is because that first man, the man, sinned. Genesis 3.1, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Listen to this. Thorns. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. The earth is accursed and thorns are a symbol of that curse. And you think of what pierced our Savior's brow, the curse. Those crown, that crown of thorns, we'll get to that a bit later as we consider our, last, our second heading. But to behold the condition of the earth today is to behold the first man, Adam. 
And we all stand condemned then in Adam because he is our head, our representative. Unless another man, unless another man is sent by God to represent us. And that is the man, the man who stood before Pilate that day that we are to behold. He is the man God promised 6,000 years ago that would save us from Adam's fall. Genesis 3.15, you know that well, that God promises to Eve that out of her, uh, out of a woman, there would be a savior come to crush the head of the serpent. And in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, we read this of Jesus. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What we behold in this text then is the man sent by God to redeem us, the second and last Adam, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Adam and Jesus are the only two men that matter in all of history. And really, if there's one man that matters, it's Jesus. If there are two that matter, it is Adam and Jesus, the first Adam and the last Adam. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, that is, was made a quickening spirit, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. That's the theology of the Bible. There are two men to behold, accursed in Adam and blessed in Christ. And so we hear in Romans 5.18, as I read the entirety of that verse, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that is Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. God has set what we call a federal theology in the Bible. All of us born in Adam, the first man. And so all of us are condemned, condemned as sinners as we are born naturally into this world. And not only are we guilty in Adam, but out of the corruption of our nature, right after the fall, as our nature is corrupt, we sin personally. And all of our personal sins come out of Adam's original corruption. And so we are made liable for all the sins we have ever committed, as well as the fact that we belong to Adam who fell. And that is our condition, friends, unless we have another who would come for us. And so we praise God that he sent another man, Jesus, the last Adam. And if we are born again in Jesus, right, born into Adam, born again into Jesus, then we are under his headship. And we are saved by his righteousness. We, we hear, and we'll, we'll dwell on this some more, when, when we hear so much testimony that this is a just man. That is the hope that we have as Christians. That Jesus Christ the just suffered for the unjust. And we are saved by his righteousness imputed to us just as Adam's guilt was imputed to us. And what of our own personal sins? What of all the sins that I've committed? What of the sins that I even confessed this morning in the seventh commandment? They are transferred. They are transferred, beloved, to the second Adam as he becomes our head. And he is responsible for us. He takes responsibility for us. And that is why, friends, he suffers silently in this text. He must be condemned in the place of those who will have faith in him. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. What we behold here is the man who suffers for we who are the unjust. 
He suffers willingly, silently. He doesn't say, I am just. Why are you doing this to me? No, he suffers silently because it is his role under God to suffer for those who are unjust. And that's what we consider in our next heading, to behold the man, our substitute. And so for Jesus to be our federal head, he takes on a greater responsibility that Adam never could. Adam could never take on this responsibility. Jesus takes on the responsibility and liability to be our redeemer. We are all liable for our sins. Our breaking of all of God's commandments summarized in the Ten Commands. All of us have broken the commands of God, just as we have heard this morning. We have all idolized. We have all lied. We have all lusted. We have all blasphemed. We have all stolen. We have all hated, and so on. We've all broken those two great commands, love God and love neighbor. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God is what God's truth is, Romans 3.23. And God requires that our debt to him, our sin debt be paid because that is justice, friends. That is justice and that is why you and I need a savior. This is why we need to be saved. And as our sin is against an infinitely holy God, Ours is an infinite debt that we could never, ever pay ourselves. And that is why sinners who are not in Christ are sent into hell for eternal punishment. If you've ever wondered why that is, it is because the sinner has offended an infinitely holy God. And then they don't cease becoming sinners in hell. They just become more and more enraged as Pilate's men are here. And so hell becomes never-ending torment. We rejoice that the Bible has these two words in it, not necessarily in this text, but we read, but God, but God, and how we thank God that he is merciful and willing to save. He requires the debt be paid. He does. Otherwise, he would be unjust and he would no longer be God. You don't want an unjust God, friends. You don't want a God who winks at evil. Because then you're going to have uh, 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 evil forever existing. So God is just and he must punish sin. And his solution to save sinners was prefigured in the animal sacrifices of old. Where we read of atonement, such as in Leviticus 17.11, For the flesh, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. In the Old Testament, an innocent animal's blood made atonement for the sinner. The innocent victim dies in the place of the sinner who deserves that death. Let's consider the scapegoat in Leviticus 16.21 on the Day of Atonement. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. This is what is called imputation. Imputation. The sins of Israel transferred to the goat who acts as their substitute. The guilty sinner's sins transferred or imputed to the innocent. The sinner goes free, and the innocent is sent out of the camp to die in the place of the sinner. And the theological term for this is vicarious substitutionary atonement. These are important as you consider Jesus Christ and you behold him. Vicarious, meaning that the sacrifice's death was on behalf not of themselves but of another. 
substitutionary, meaning that the sacrifice acts as a substitute for the other person. And atonement, meaning it pays off what is owed to God. And so children, if you ever hear that vicarious substitutionary atonement, you know we are speaking of Jesus Christ doing this for his people, doing this for those who have faith in him. And so we understand that those animal sacrifices in Leviticus were only there to prefigure the work of the Son of God and to prepare us to meet Jesus. Uh, The animal's blood, you heard in Hebrews 10.4, does not atone for sin. It cannot. Those animals, in other words, they do not have infinite value in order to pay off an infinite debt that is required to atone for our sinfulness. It remained for Jesus to use the infinite value of the blood of God, which is required to atone for the sinner's debt, which is an infinite penalty owed to God. Which is why the Bible, when this gospel opens in its first chapter, gives you another sight to behold, doesn't it? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist points to Jesus Christ. And that is what you behold here. And that is the crux of this text. That you behold the man who becomes our substitute to save us. You behold the man who came as our vicarious substitutionary atonement. You behold the man who came to pay for your sin. You behold the man who was just. But condemned as a criminal for we who are unjust. Why is the man silent? Before his accusers. Because while not personally guilty, he represents all who are guilty and all who are condemned. And so he does not dispute against Pilate. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Why? For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Believer, you must behold the man in this text and behold the man in the sacrament who is your Savior, innocent, perfectly righteous, yet willing, willing. He is not there on accident. He didn't just sort of, it wasn't one random so-called occurrence after another that brings him there to the judgment seat of Pilate. You are beholding a willing sacrifice who willingly lays down his life for you, who has come to be treated as a criminal. You hate it. You hate it so much when you are unjustly accused of even the slightest thing, don't you, friend? And here he is willing to be considered the world's greatest sinner in the eyes of all of the earth for your sake. What a sight it is to behold the man willing to be a criminal who took your place before the law and was silent when condemned because condemned in your place, he doesn't answer because he is guilty for you. You need to make this text very personal, believer, as you come to the supper. You need to apprehend gospel truths as the apostle did, who said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You must say, O my soul, behold the man who loved me and was condemned for me. He opened not his mouth because he took my sins willingly and was answerable for all my crimes against God and man. 
Though he could have a legion of angels defend him at that point and remove him from that misery, he stood silent and guilty before the law because I, Ram, am guilty of breaking the law. Not him, me. Not in any way was our Savior guilty of the least crime. And yet I was guilty, am guilty of breaking all the law. And he stands silent before the law. And believer, consider how thoroughly he was condemned for you. He was condemned under both tables of the law. And we miss that in this text. Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, condemn him as a blasphemer. Guilty under the first table. Guilty of breaking the first command, which sums up the entirety of the first table, even the entirety of the law, commandments one through four. But Jesus never once broke any of those commandments. He was right when he said he was God. But he was convicted of being a blasphemer because we, his people, are blasphemers. Even the Apostle Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer. And so he is answerable before God as a blasphemer for his people's sake. And then Pilate condemns him as an insurrectionist in the civil realm, guilty of breaking the fifth commandment, representing the entirety of the second table, commandments 5 to 10. Not because Jesus broke any of those commands. All the man did, all this man did was love neighbor. All he did was heal. All he did was bless. All he ever did is show love both to God and neighbor. But because we, his people, have broken the second table, he becomes guilty before the law of breaking the second table. And so you must behold the man who is condemned under the entirety of God's law publicly. Believer, you need to behold the man who is condemned for your crimes against God's holy law. As you are then Believer, taken to the judgment seat. Not Pilate's judgment seat, but God's judgment seat on the last day. After this life is over, believer, after you see Jesus condemned in your stead, you will go in confidence. You will go in confidence because as Jesus was condemned as a lawbreaker in your place, it would be utterly unjust for the just God to condemn you because Jesus was condemned under the entirety of the law for you doing it in your place as your substitute to fulfill the role of the Old Testament scapegoat. Do you remember when I read Leviticus 16 that the high priest touched the head of the goat? What was he doing? It was a picture, right? Uh, That the sins of my people, of God's people, are being transferred onto the head of this goat. Now look upon this scene with understanding, believer. Did you behold the crown of thorns twisted upon the head of your Savior? Where did the thorns come from? They come from the curse and the fall. The only reason thorns of any kind could be placed upon his brow is because Adam sinned. And that is the only reason that there are thorns to even put upon his head. And they represent the curse that we deserve being placed on the head of the beloved Savior, whose brow and his being is completely innocent. And so you find the curse for breaking God's law placed on your Savior's head in your place as he is sent out to be condemned and crucified in your place. So believer, when you think of the crown of thorns, you behold the man accursed in your place. 
But of course, this is all that curse uh, pictured upon his brow is just a picture of the greater torment he suffered as a curse for us. When he is hoisted on the cross and you read it, you heard it. When God poured out his wrath on Jesus, we remember other texts like Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That's Galatians 3.13, citing Deuteronomy 21.33. We see that there is no more curse for us, beloved, not for our person, because Jesus Christ was made a curse for us willingly. You know, up to the time that God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross, we've heard him be silent, haven't we? But when the wrath of God comes, What do we hear? We hear for the first time the Savior cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27, citing Psalm 22. For three hours on the cross, the Savior bears his soul before God and the wrath of God is poured out on him as the sinner's substitute. You have to behold in this text the man who for three hours bore the infinite eternal wrath of God upon his soul. How did the man do it? How could any man bear under the wrath of Almighty God? It is because the man here is not just any man, but he is the God-man. He is the God-man and his divine nature upholds his humanity under the wrath of God so that when he says it is finished, it is finished. Absolutely so. The debt that I owe And you, the believer, oh, is paid in full by the God-man because his suffering has infinite merit because it is counted. Though God cannot suffer in the divine nature, the person of the Son of God uh, suffers in his human nature and it is accredited to us as the suffering of the God-man. He drinks the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs so that you and I will never have to, so that there is, and now you understand that the truth of Romans 8 verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that the cup that we will now drink is not the cup of God's wrath, but the cup of blessing that we bless because of his work on the cross. And after he suffered the wrath of God for us on the cross, he said, I thirst. Why is that? Is it just his physical agony being up there for hours? No, I don't think so. You remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? In hell, the rich man thirsts and has not a drop of water to cool his tongue. And so the Savior, after experiencing the torments of hell for us, he thirsts. He thirsts. And that is the thirst that we deserve. He thirsts after his work on the cross, so that you never will, believer. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4.14 When you see the Savior thirsting after his agony on the cross, you see, I will never thirst in hell because he has suffered hell for me. And all being done, he says with satisfaction, And triumph even, it is finished. It is all done. I have won salvation for my beloved, and she is saved forevermore. The Father is satisfied with my work, 
and his countenance now once again shines upon me. And all things being finished, we read that he gives up the ghost, he gives up his spirit and dies. He had said earlier, no man takes his life from him. He lays down his own life. And so having finished all things, it is now time for him to give up his spirit and he lays down his life himself. But then you noticed after the man dies, a lance is plunged into his side. And you see water and blood gush out of him, gush out of him as though a fountain is opened up from his side. This is Jesus fulfilling that old prophecy. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to Jerusalem and to the inhabitants, rather, in Zechariah 13.2. A fountain, what, Zechariah says, for uncleanness would be opened up. And here it is opened up in the son of David and in his side to cleanse us. And you see here that uh, uh, John has said and made it, uh, uh, wanted to know, make it known in verse 35 that this disciple, who is John, saw it bear record, and his record is true. And what did he write then in 1 John 5, 5 through 6, as he remembers this record? Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. This fountain that comes out the side of Jesus Christ of water and blood shows that he atoned for our sins with his blood and shows that he has washed away our sinful pollution in that water. Augustine and John Calvin saw the two sacraments here. The blood which signifies our atonement at the Lord's table, which is what you see, of course, in the sacramental action of pouring, which is why pouring is a necessary sacramental action. We hear that this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed, that is poured for you. Luke twenty-two twenty, The pouring of the wine in the chalice is a picture of Christ's side being opened up, his blood pouring out to atone for us. And that's what you must behold as I pour the wine into the chalice, God willing, is you're remembering and recalling the side of the Son of God opened to cleanse me. And to atone for my sin. And then the water that pours out of him is as then in the other sacrament, as baptismal waters poured on the head in that sacrament that pictures the pollution of our sin washed away by Christ. The water and the blood. And the parallels with the first man actually even go deeper than that. For if the bride of Adam is taken out of the side of Adam when he sleeps then the bride of the second Adam is taken out of the side of him after he dies. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Song 8.6 And truly, the second man's love for his bride far excels the love of the first man's love for his. Ephesians 5.25-26 Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and what? gave himself for it, gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That is what you are seeing here, is you are seeing the bride of Christ saved as the side of the last Adam is pierced and her salvation gushes forth out of him in love. Matthew Henry put it this way, Through this window opened in Christ's side, you may look into his heart and see love flaming there, love strong as death, 
and see our names written here. Some make it an allusion to the opening of Adam's side in innocency, when Christ the second Adam was fallen into a deep sleep upon the cross. Then was his side opened, and out of it was his church taken, which he espoused to himself. Does that not add significance to our preparatory service, beloved? Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. The beauty of Christ and the love of Christ demonstrated as he laid down his life for us. And in days past, and I want to confront you all, in days past then, as we see all this imagery, ministers might ask, have you washed in the blood of the Son of God? Have you yourself washed in the blood of the Son of God and the Savior? Have you had the cleansing of the Son of God poured upon your soul? And have you done this by receiving him by faith? Unbeliever, if you are here among us, Would you behold the man slain in the place of sinners out of love? You must take him. You must take him for yourself and be washed in his blood that saves to the uttermost. And you will be wed to Jesus Christ who loves his bride in such a profound way as this and saves her even dying on the cross for her. You can be wed to him. You can be engaged to him. All it takes is faith. And that is how you wash in the blood of the Savior and become betrothed to this great husband. You can be cleansed from every sin and every guilt, every sin, every guilt, no matter how deep. Here is Jesus Christ condemned as a blasphemer and as an insurrectionist, uh, representing the totality of the law. Whatever you've done, the Lord, in other words, can save you if your faith is in him. These things are written in John's gospel. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Uh, who, who would ever invent such a Savior as this, friends? It is only the mind of God that could produce Christ. This Savior is so profound and so unlike, and we'll consider that this Lord's Day evening in our Thanksgiving sermon, unlike any other religious figure in all of history because he is true God come in the flesh. But if you don't take him as your savior, you will also behold the man after you die. And he, not Pilate, will sit in the judgment seat. He who was once judged becomes judge of all. And that is what he deserves, to be judge of all after being unjustly judged. And he will sit in the judgment seat and he will not be your savior And he will be your judge if you don't flee to Christ. And the very law that he came under, that he was condemned under, he will use that very law to judge you and you will be found guilty. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Take Christ and live. Well, time being short in a communion service, our next heading is, Behold the man, our righteousness. I want you to note Christ's work in verses 25 through 28. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, listen to this. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, all things now accomplished, we'll leave it there for now, 
But what was Jesus doing here? He kept the fifth commandment that he was condemned under. He kept that commandment to the very end, didn't he? Unjustly condemned as a breaker of the fifth commandment. He now shows that he is just. He loves his mother and he honors her as the commandment says. He even knew that great prophecy about her concerning his birth. Mary was told, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. And what a soul is piercing her soul as she watches her son in the flesh suffer the wrath of God. Surely her soul is pierced as her son is nailed to the cross and in his last dying moments. But do you behold the man in his final moments, the man who gives his mother to John? That righteous act completes his keeping of the fifth command, honor thy father and thy mother. Why? That we might have that righteousness for ourselves. Boys and girls, especially as you are convicted of breaking this fifth commandment, look at your Savior fulfilling the law you are bound to keep towards your own parents. I've mentioned this before in Luke's gospel, but whenever we see any righteous act of Christ, we are seeing a record of our own righteousness. Such that this is the record of the fifth commandment. God credits to you who have faith in the Savior. You see, it was not enough for the man to have atoned for our sin. He must have been the perfect man. Perfect in holiness and righteousness. As a man ought to be, and no other man ever was. In that alone, he is the man. He is the singular man who has ever kept all the commandments of God. And so to save us, he must impute to us his righteousness that we might be counted as law doers. We must be counted as those who have loved God and loved neighbor and perfectly so because all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. So praise the Lord that the name that the bride of Christ is known by after the work of Christ is found in Jeremiah thirty three sixteen. This is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. This is the name by which you are called bride of Christ. The Lord, our righteousness. And so to behold the man today is to behold him as Jehovah, our righteousness. Jehovah, who made the law, made under the law in the incarnation to become our righteousness. Why? To keep the commandments of God, to love God and love neighbor that his bride has broken. That we would ever call him, not ourselves, our righteousness. And now you think of that tattered purple robe that our Savior wore, that was soaked with his own blood, that can easily serve as a picture of our own filthy righteousness, friends. And as our substitute, it is fitting to see him robed like that, you know, because we pretend we wear a robe of perfection, while the Bible says we wear filthy rags as those soaked with blood. But Christ's righteousness is pure and spotless, not filthy at all, yet he wears that purple robe for us, so many, many, so many think today, right? God will accept me because I am good. So many say that God, when I die, will accept me. I've been a good person. But why then does Jesus have to come? <laughs> if righteousness would come from the law, then Christ died for nothing, is what the Bible says. This man does what no other man has ever done, which is to earn righteousness. And he, this is the free gift he gives us. If we receive him by faith, is to give that garment of holiness to us and replaces our filthy rags. 
For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be what? Made the righteousness of God in him. This was also, Zechariah is such a full gospel text where he, we see he takes our filthy garments and gives us his perfect garment of righteousness. Zechariah 3, 3 through 5. Now Joshua was clothed with what? Filthy garments and stood before the angel. And this angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment, or change of clothing. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. This is that great exchange, friends. Jesus Christ wearing that crown of thorns that we might wear the crown of righteousness. Jesus Christ wearing that tattered robe that we might have his perfect holiness enrobing us. That is what you see when you behold the man who changes our filthy rags to give us his own glorious righteousness. And what does he do? It's astonishing. He wears the crown of thorns. So as we sing in Psalm 103, we would be crowned with loving kindness from God. I will never, for all eternity, understand why a sinner like myself has such a Savior as this. Never understand it whatsoever. It is completely unfathomable when you consider the man, Jesus. And yet this is the very word of God that testifies these things are true. And it would be a sin to doubt it today, believer. It would be a sin to doubt any of these things are true because God has pledged them to you. And so, children of God, we're about to behold the man in the sacrament, the perfect man, the righteous man, the the sinless man. When the bread is broken, then say, O my soul, behold the man broken in my place. When the wine is poured, say, O my soul, behold the man poured out, pierced to cover my sin. When you tear your piece of the bread, of the loaf, say, O my soul, behold the man broken for me. When you sip your portion of the cup of the Savior, say, O my soul, behold the man who bled for me. And as you meditate on this table, say, O my soul, behold the love of God. Say, behold the man broken who has made an entrance into heaven for me. No, maybe even more than that, behold the man who is heaven to me, broken in my place. And come to the table giving glory to the God of heaven for Jesus Christ, the man, the last Adam. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. Oh, our Father and our God, I preach the word as you have commanded me to preach Christ crucified. But uh, it'll be of no good and no use, Father, unless your spirit blesses it. We pray that those who are unbelievers here would behold the man, Jesus, and would hear and understand the gospel from this text. And they would come to Christ and meet us at the table next time. And we pray for those who have come here with a weak faith today, who have cried, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, that their faith, that they are saved, would be strengthened as they behold the man, Jesus, who alone is their righteousness, that there is nothing in them, nothing in me, that has saved us, but instead it is wholly the work of Christ, our substitute. 
We thank you and bless you for Christ, and we ask that you would add a blessing to us now as we prepare to come to the table. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.